I enjoyed breakfast this morning and sat with another group of guys. <laughs> and I told them at breakfast, and I'll, I'll tell you, I, I can't help whenever I'm sitting at a breakfast like this and I see scrambled eggs that are institutionally prepared. <sighs> I always wonder. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> so back, when, back in the day, uh, Nathan, I was a couple years older than you. Okay, so I was 16 or 17. I took driver's ed. And now this is, this is decades ago. But when I was taking driver's education, I took it from a man who had fought in World War II in the European theater. And he was a cook. And he told me that when he was out on the battlefield, they, supplies were limited and they didn't always have everything they wanted. But they always had plenty of powdered eggs. And so they would make up a big pot of powdered eggs, and they would take one real egg. They would throw it in there, stir it up, break up the shell, so that with a group of six soldiers here and eight over there and four over here, somebody in each group would get one piece of shell in their eggs, and they would complain about it. Oh, I can't believe he didn't get all the shells out of here. And everyone else would think, oh, it must be real eggs. <laughs> I can't help but thinking. So I, I'm not saying, I mean, the food's good here, but I just have that little bit of thought. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> so here's, here's the overview for the weekend. Uh, last night we talked about leading when duty calls. Abram, Lot, four kings, 318, long hike, night ops, back down to Jerusalem, that encounter with Melchizedek, the most high God is possessor of heaven and earth, and because of that, our leading needs to reflect that as we serve and as we steward, that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. So this morning, we're going to take a second one, leading in difficult times, which for some of us is more common than not difficult times. And then later uh, this morning, the second session, I want to talk about 10 leadership maneuvers and a general's guide to serving and leading. So It'll be a condensed version of what you can read afterwards in the book. And then later this afternoon, the hard part of leading. Uh, Sunday, a leader is called out. It's a military man that is called out for his profession, but not because of his profession. If you're able to join it, Adirondack Bible Chapel, that's what I intend to talk about. But today, this session, let's talk about leading in difficult times. Uh, our text is Numbers chapter 14. If you have your Bible, flip over there. If you have an app, uh, click there and be ready. Numbers 14, verses 6 to 11. Um, I might be the oldest guy in the room, um, if not close. And, and there are some that, that will really identify with this. I have come to view aging and mortality different than ever before. I, I do things today because I really understand what the Bible says, that we're not promised tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying that I gave 
Ed Hart a coin last night because I wasn't sure he would be here today. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> but the thought did cross my mind. I wouldn't want to come today and say, man, I wish I'd given it to him last night. Uh, isn't it that way with all of us? I mean, it, God's word is true. Sometimes I'm not the sharpest pencil in the drawer and the light doesn't come on until later in life. But I think about life differently now than, than I have before. And, and one of the things I think a lot about is I wonder what it takes to finish strong. Now, some of you are looking forward to retirement. And, and I'm at an age where I could retire. In fact, you know that I retired from the Air Force and you might ask my wife, oh, so your husband retired. She would say, oh, no, he's not retired. I'm teaching at Cedarville. I'm a senior advisor to the president. I sit on two external boards. I do consulting work. I mentor Cedarville students. Uh, we have them into our home. I am not retired. I, I really haven't figured it out very well how to do that, but I want to finish strong uh, with godliness and discipline and tenacity. It's important, young men, to start well. Middle and older men, it's also important to finish well, to follow through. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a young man who did exactly that. He started well, and then he followed through. The title is Leading in Difficult Times, and I would tell you that it takes real courage. Uh, we're going to look at Caleb's courage. Courage to live to be chosen. So of his whole tribe, he was the one person out of thousands that was chosen to be a spy to go into the land. He was one of 12, but he was the one chosen from his tribe. Are you living in a way that puts you ready to be chosen? He had courage to take on a hard job. I mean, this was a hard job, and it turned out to be harder than maybe envisioned at the beginning, like a lot of tasks are. He had courage not to turn from God when his peers did. Think about that. How often are we looking over our shoulder and looking around and seeing how other people are responding to let that determine how we're going to respond to something? not Caleb. He had courage not to turn from God even when his peers did. His eyes were on God, not on his buddies. He had courage to do what was right, leaving the outcome to the Lord. How many times do we, before we make that decision, we see what the consequences of that decision are going to be? You with me? Uh, we try to look around the corner if I do this, then this is going to happen. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Rather than, like the president at Cedarville University, uh, Dr. Thomas White says, do what's right and let God sort it out. Just do what's right. That was Caleb. Courage to do what was right, leaving the outcome with the Lord. And then he also had courage to wholly follow the Lord. That's where I really want to focus on next this is the main idea. Live so the Lord delights in us. Now, that's a high standard. 
Living to delight in the Lord is, is, that's a hefty standard. But living so that the Lord delights in you, it says in 1 Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the earth, looking who he may bless. Oh, Lord, may your eyes fall on me. I want to live so that the Lord delights in me. Next. This is the outline that I want to follow. Uh, Joshua and Caleb proclaim. And then we'll see the people push back. And then we'll see what happens. In that situation, the Lord was provoked. Now, that's not really an overstatement at all. It's the exact word Scripture uses. The Lord was provoked. And then, often skipped, is the postscript. That's where we'll end up. Uh, And the text I want us to read together is Numbers 14, 6 to 11. If you're able, in honor of the Word of God, would you please stand? I'll read Numbers 14, 6 to 11, and I'm reading from the King James. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into his, this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For they are bred for us, and their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? for all the signs which I have shown among them. Father, we come to you. We look at this real event that happened in your response to the people of Israel and also to the courage of Caleb. I pray that your word would be remembered and any inconsistencies that I speak, that they would be forgotten. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Let me share with you first the context of the passage so you understand where it is. We've kind of jumped into the middle of the movie, and it's, it's good to know how, how it started, how we got to where we are. You see, in Numbers chapter 13, the previous chapter, Moses sent 12 spies. He selected them. He sent them. They surveyed the land, and they came back and summarized what they saw. Uh, Pastor Stephen, just a little alliteration there, just to keep, keep you going. Okay. Uh, they reported, oh, they're a strong people. They have walled cities. They have giants and many people groups. 
And the ten spies shouted down Caleb and Joshua. Isn't that often the way it is in life? The people that don't have a clue or have it wrong shout down the few that have it right. They shouted down Caleb and Joshua. And so we come to chapter 14 in the first five verses. In verse 1, the people shouted and cried and wept all night. Now that's no exaggeration. Scripture says what it means and it means what it says. The people shouted. Imagine perhaps two million people shouting, crying, weeping all night. Can you feel uh, the angst that they had to do what the Lord said he would help them do? In verse 2, the congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron. Well, this wasn't anything new for them. They had murmuring down pat. They murmured against Moses and Aaron, the two leaders. In verse 3, they questioned God's judgment, and they accused him of not caring. Imagine questioning God's judgment and not caring. In verse 4, they resolved to select their own captain and to return to Egypt. Now, they'd been gone for about 45 days at this point from Egypt, a month and a half. And it's time to go into the land. And they want to pick their own captain, get rid of Moses and Aaron, and go back to Egypt. In verse 5, Moses and Aaron worshiped God. If you look in chapter 16, verses 4 and 22, you'll see that when they worshiped God, they fell on their faces. What does your worship of God look like? Just going through the motions, singing the words from memory, praying rote prayers, dwelling in the same scriptures, and Moses and Aaron were all out. And then we see the example of living so the Lord delights in us. It's more than delighting in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of thy heart. And so we come to verse 6. And the first point in our outline slide, please. It's Joshua and Caleb proclaim in verses 6 to 9. So I'm showing the verses if that will help you just to keep up here. Uh, In verse 6, I observed that Joshua and Caleb were someone's sons. You see, it doesn't just say Joshua and Caleb. Don't miss that. It's Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Japuna. How we live, even as adults, reflects on our parents. I teach a leadership class at Cedarville and A couple years ago, after class one day, one of my students, on her way to chapel, which follows my class, quick called up her dad on her cell phone as she was walking along and told him some things that had happened in class. You know, there is a young lady, probably in her 20s, who understood she is still her father's daughter. How we live reflects on our parents. And we don't use this way of identifying people now, Joshua, son of Nun, but I'm Lauren, son of John, Reno. It says in Ephesians 6, 2, and 3, honor 
thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that thou mayest live long on the earth. This is the New Testament, Ephesians, Paul writing to honor our father and mother. My dad died on my birthday in 1981, 40 plus years ago. I can still bring honor or dishonor to him. And so I think the author just dropping in the names of the fathers of these two heroes of our story is a good reminder that how we live reflects on our parents. Uh, these guys were partners, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, they were in the world, but not of the world. And you'll notice that they spoke with one voice. It says in the beginning of seven, and they spoke unto the company of the children of Israel. They spoke with one voice. They had the same message. It was consistent. They were together. I love that we had a time this morning for two men to pray together. Find somebody that you can be accountable to and hold someone else accountable. Give someone permission to put their finger in your chest. That's Joshua and Caleb. They were together in what they said, partners, in the world but not of the world. They were diligent in searching out the land. No matter the task you are given, young, medium, or old, be diligent in what you're doing. And I see in verse 6 also that they were godly. You see, they rent their clothes. Now, what that means is they tore their clothes. And that's a way of prostrating yourself and showing great humility and angst and, and dissatisfaction and displeasure with what's happening. They rent their clothes. Matthew Henry writes, they did their part. A holy indignation at the people's sin. A holy dread of the wrath of God, end quote. They showed their personal piety publicly. Do we hold back in letting others see our personal holiness, our pursuit of God? Are we more concerned with what people think or with what God thinks? Caleb and Joshua, it's pretty clear to me, publicly before the company of the congregation of Israel were not embarrassed or ashamed or reluctant to show their godliness. In verse 7, we see that they spoke courageously together and had the same message. I think of Philippians 4. They stood steadfast and of the same mind in the Lord. Previously, in chapter 13, verse 30, Caleb had stilled the people and he said, go up at once Possess it. We are able to overcome it. That's what Caleb had said to the people the first time he encountered them. Go up at once. Urgency. Possess it. Readiness. We are able to overcome it. Confidence. Caleb spoke to his peers and to the congregation uh, of the urgency, the readiness, and the confidence that he had in what God would do. This second time, he spoke to all the company of the children of Israel. And by all, it means all. He stated what they did and saw. We passed through it. We searched it. It's an exceeding good land. 
Now, in verse 8, we see the basis for their confidence. And it should be the same basis for our confidence. If the Lord delight in us, that's the main idea in the passage, I think, live so that the Lord delights in us. Caleb says, if the Lord delight in us, it acknowledges God's sovereignty and his omnipotence. Do we live in a way that acknowledges God's sovereignty and his omnipotence? I was talking with someone last evening uh, about my wife's stroke, and I, I told him, it's not bad news, it's just news. I mean, bad news? Like God was surprised? Oh, no, I didn't realize that. No. Let's understand God's sovereignty and let's look for the Romans 8.28 good in whatever happens. It acknowledged God's sovereignty and it also acknowledged his omnipotence. Now, I don't know that Caleb and Joshua knew how God was going to do it. In fact, when you get to the book of Joshua 40 plus years later, when Joshua led them across the River Jordan and against the wall, first walled city of Jericho, he began to see how God would do it. But we don't always see how God's going to do something. Someone said, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's what the sovereignty of God is about. It's trusting the Lord that he's going to bring about what he says. We see in this verse, uh, verse 8, a conditional promise. It says, if the Lord delights in us, if, then. So if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. It's a conditional promise. You have to hold up your end, and then the Lord will follow through. We see these throughout Scripture. If I love God and am called by God, then all things work for my good, Romans 8, 28. If I ask, then God will provide, James 4, 7. If I resist the devil, then he will run away, Romans 8, 35. If I am God's sheep, that is, I hear and follow him, then nothing can snatch me from his hand or from Jesus' hand. John 10, 27 to 29. If I sow, then I will reap. If I labor in the Lord, then it will not be fruitless. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. If I approach the throne of grace, then I will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. If I honor the Lord with my substance and with the first fruits of all my increase, then my barns will be filled with plenty, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, Numbers 14, 8. They knew about the Lord, but they also knew him. Pause. How is it with you? Do you know only about the Lord from studying the Bible, from reading podcasts, from watching DVDs, from going to church? Do you only know about the Lord? Or do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? 
They said that he will bring us. He will bring us across the Jordan and against Jericho and the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the termites. I just threw that in, see if you're listening. Uh, He will bring us all of the way. And it says in verse 8, he will gift us. He will give it to us. He will make it ours. He will sustain us in it. The Lord is waiting to pour out to you. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It flows with milk and honey. It's the same testimony as the others, 10, gave in chapter 13 and verse 27, which brings us to verse 9. A specific listing of how to live so the Lord delights in us. And there are two main points here in the listing of how to live so the Lord delights in us. The first is to rebel not. You see, it says, only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, and their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. The first way to live so the Lord delights in us is to rebel not. Rebel not ye against the Lord. The action, rebel not. Who is you? Against whom? The Lord. Rebel you, not against the Lord. What follows in verse 8 is an expression of God's sovereignty and his omnipotence. Uh, To rebel means a person who rises in opposition or armed resistance against an established government or ruler. We know more about rebellion in 2023 than our forefathers did who only read about it in history books. Uh, There are people on trial for rebellion against the government of the United States, and there are rebellions going on around the world. It's rising in opposition or armed resistance against an established government or ruler, and the ruler, in this case, is God himself. And Joshua and Caleb are saying, don't rebel against God. To acquiesce to the ten was to rebel against the Lord. It's not caving in to your peers. It's not going along to get along. It's not walking away from what you know to be right. Let us be careful of majority rules where God rules. It's not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1, 1's blessed man. Rebel not. And then secondly, fear not the people of the land. Why shouldn't they fear the people of the land? Well, we see here uh, a metaphor with a double, double meaning. The first is, they have as much power over us as food does the one eating it. It says, for they are bread for us. So they have as much power over us as food does when you're eating it. Those eggs on your plate this morning had no power over you. You demolished them. I watched you. You took a bite at a time, and you didn't worry about the eggshells, right? (laughs) 
they had, you have power over your food. And that's the same power this is speaking of that they would have over the land. And the second part is uh, they are already bred for us. Already they are bred for us. They are ripe for the picking, uh, an expression that we use in Ohio. And secondly, their defense has departed from them. This is a statement of the futility of man's strongholds compared to the power of God. Now, some of you older gents have enough experience in life that you have personally seen where the power of God has overcome strongholds of man. Some of you are taking that by faith and seeing it in God's work. Real things that happened, like in this story. But their defense has departed from them. It's a statement of the futility of man's strongholds compared to the power of God. So strong was the object of Caleb's and Joshua's faith that they saw the defenses already departed from them. You notice it says their defense is departed from them, not will be, not could be, not should be. Present tense, right now, their defense is already departed from them. I'm careful in my words to say it was the object of Joshua's and Caleb's faith because many will say, you just need to have great faith. And even more important, by leagues, than my faith is the object of my faith. And their faith in the Lord was so strong, they saw it as already having happened. Recall Abram and his 318 trained servants overtaking and overpowering the victorious armies, armies of four kings. 318 men overcoming the four kings of the north. 318 against the armies of four kings. Recall the wheels coming off and the heaped up Red Sea rolling over Egypt's horses and chariots and horsemen, Exodus 14. Look forward from our text to the standing up of the water of the Jordan River, the falling down of the walls of Jericho, and the swarming forward of the hornets the Lord sent to drive out two kings, Joshua 24. They say the Lord is with us. Now, it's the Lord, not a Lord. And it's the Lord, not a man-made God. It's the Lord is, not will be. He is with us. And he's with, right here, co-located, present. And he is with us and not someone else. You might look to other people and say, man, I wish the Lord could be close to me like he is to whoever. No. The Lord wants to be near us. He says he will never leave us nor forsake us. In Hebrews 13.5, here in the Old Testament, God dwelled in the tabernacle. In the New Testament, now he dwells in believers. It says in John 14.26, the Father sends the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. And in 1 Corinthians 6.19, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's. He is dwelling with us. And finally, he says, they, Caleb and Joshua say, 
fear them not. It's interesting, it's mentioned twice here in the same verse. When something's in the same passage two or three times, pay attention to it, trying to pound it home to us twice in the same verse. Psalm 56, 11 says, in God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Do you have that confidence in the Lord, the sovereign, omnipotent God, that you won't even be afraid of what man can do to you because you have put your trust in God? Romans 8, 31, what shall we say then to all of these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's rhetorical. The answer is obvious. We don't even have to say it. Nobody. If God's for us, it doesn't matter who, who's against us because they just don't matter because God is for us. Let's go to the next slide and look at the second part of the story here, and that is that the people pushed back. You see in verse uh, 10, the beginning, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. But in contrast, not in agreement to what Joshua and Caleb had just been saying. There was no agreement. There was no partial agreement. It was flat-out rebellion. And the word but, the first word of the verse, flags that for us. It's different. It's not the way it should have been. They're not following the lead of Caleb and Joshua. And it says all the congregation. It's not a few. It's not some. It's not most. It's all the congregation. It's the same as chapter 14, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. It's all the congregation. Now, the word bade, let me help you with that. It's an archaic past tense of the word bid. Archaic means we don't use, we don't talk that way anymore, but it means uh, to bid. It's to command or order someone to do something. And so that's where the people were. They weren't bouncing ideas off. They were resolved. They were determined on how they were going to do it. And they were going to stone them with stones. Now, this was a method of capital punishment where a group threw stones at a person until the subject dies from blunt force trauma. Think about Achan in Joshua 7, verse 25. So these stones were not skipping stones across the stream or a body of water. These were football or basketball-sized stones they would raise above their head and then throw down on the person. Stone after stone after stone, and they called it stoning. And that's what they were suggesting be done for Caleb and Joshua. <clears throat> you probably are not going to be surprised with how the story continues because next slide we see that the Lord was provoked. In verse 10, the second part, it says, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? God's glory appeared to all the people. When God's glory appeared to Moses, he, he, was, he was just overwhelmed. Others 
bowed down prostrate on the ground before the glory of the Lord. God's glory appeared to all the people. The ESV version reads, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. It should have been a time for shame and regret and forgiveness. I notice in verse 11 that the Lord spoke to Moses and not to the people. This is another clue that things are not going to go well. He's done talking with the people. He's going to talk to Moses. How long will this people provoke me? We also see in verse 23 that none who provoke the Lord shall even see the land. They poked the bear. Okay? You understand what that means? Someone that, that is no power at all pokes a sleeping bear. You don't want to do that. God is the omnipotent one. And they poked him. How long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs I have shown them. Think of the plagues in Egypt. A single plague. The frogs. Uh, the fleas. Uh, the rivers turning to blood. But all of the plagues. Think about the Red Sea being rolled back. The signs which Jesus had shown them just in the last two months. The manna that fell from heaven six days a week. It was just there. What a sign from heaven. The quail. Just a month and a half, it says in the passage, uh, 45 days after they left Israel, they murmured, and God provided quail for them so they could have meat. Think about the cloud and the fire to guide them. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, all the signs that God had showed them. And they wouldn't believe him. In verses 12 to 37, then the rest of the chapter plays out. Moses interceded. He promises their carcasses will fall in the wilderness. That's a harsh word. Their little ones will inherit what they refused. And the ten spies die by the plague. It's later in the chapter. That's what happened to the other ten. They didn't even make it into the 40 years when the rest of the people wandered. They died by a plague on the spot. But I'm so glad this is not the end of the story. Uh, go to the next slide because I want to show you the postscript. The postscript is over in Joshua chapter 14. Would you turn over, please? Joshua chapter 14. And the verses are there in front of you. I want to read starting in verses 6 to 13. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal. Okay, so this, this is after the 40 years of wandering. And now Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land and taking and dividing the promised land. Thou knowest... Uh, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him. So you have Caleb talking to Joshua. Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. 
And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. So this is 40, when he was 40 years old. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Oh, what a statement. I'd love to get to the end of my life and say, I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land wherein thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Past tense. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these 40 and 5 years. So it's 45 years later before this story plays out, before we get to the postscript. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and 85 years old. He's 85 years old when he's having this conversation with Joshua. And yet, I am as strong this day as it was in the day that Moses sent me, and my strength, as my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go in, to go out, and to come in. You know, often the postscript, the epilogue, the rest of the story for us doesn't come until much later in life. At 40 years old, Caleb decided to be faithful and to do what was right in God's eyes. There are more than a few of you here in this room in your 40s. Okay, I hope you're identifying with Caleb, the pressures, the peer pressure, the experiences, where you are, things you do, where you're plugged in, the lives you're touching. Right at your stage, Caleb decided that he was going to wholly follow the Lord. And it was 45 years later, at age 85, add another decade to where I am, before it finally played out. I see in verse 8, Caleb is speaking, and he says, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Caleb said, I wholly followed the Lord my God. Look in verse 9. Moses said, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 14, the author of Joshua adds their perspective. Because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And if you go back to Numbers 14 and verse 24, it's the Lord speaking, but my servant Caleb hath wholly followed me. It was Caleb's testimony. It was the testimony of those that were close to him, Moses. It's the author of the book of Joshua. And it's the Lord himself in Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb hath wholly followed me. So that's the story of leading in difficult times. Next slide, please. Live so the Lord delights in us. So my question to you is, how do we do that? How do we men upstate New York in this room, how do we live so the Lord delights in us? And being willing not to see the end till 45 or more years later. 
How do we live so the Lord delights in us? Next slide. It's pretty simple. Holy, follow the Lord. Holy means in entirety. Fully, follow the Lord. How are you doing in this area, guys? Are you following the Lord where it's convenient, where you see a near-term benefit, where others will say, oh, look how humble or godly or scripturally knowledgeable you are? Or are you don't care about that. You are wholly following the Lord. So what does that look like? What does it look like to wholly follow the Lord? I, next slide. I, I would suggest these three ways. First, and I think of Caleb, what he and Joshua told the people. I think first we have to yield to him. It's surrendering. It's giving up. It's realizing that God Most High is the possessor of heaven and earth. And we need to yield to him. It's not about us. I'm not entitled Numbers 14.9, he said, rebel not ye against the Lord. If you yield to Christ, you are not rebelling against him. Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Committing your way to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and leaving the outcomes with him. That's what yielding to the Lord is in your Christian life. The second thing I would suggest is the way we wholly follow the Lord is we trust in him. We don't let our fear turn us from the Lord or from his will. Acknowledge his sovereignty, his providence. We don't have to trace his hand. Just trust his heart. Obey God's word. God is not going to lead you to do something that's inconsistent with his word. Become scholars, students of the word, learning. Someone said when you're done learning, you're done. Don't get done before, before it's time. Don't let fear turn us from the Lord or from his will. It says in Numbers 14, 9, fear not the people of the land. They had the upper hand. They had the walled cities. They had the high ground. They owned the territory. All these reasons, don't fear the people of the land. Psalm 56, 11, David writes, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do to me. And in Romans 8, 31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? We trust in him. And third, we rest in him. Pastor Hart, some of us older gents, we understand this. Resting in the Lord. It's more than just go, go, go. Sometimes it's rest, rest, rest. It's hearing the still, small voice back to the time of Elijah. We rely on the presence of the Lord 
Numbers 14, 9 says, the Lord is with us. Psalm 23, verse 3, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. And verse 4, yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So I think this applies to us following the Lord wholly, completely, fully, as Christian men. I told you that I wanted to just uh, be sure that we all understand what it means to those who maybe don't know Christ as Savior. You have not had a personal encounter with Jesus. And so laying the Christian life aside, I think these three points also apply to men who may be seeking or wondering or just want to be reminded what it means to be a believer, a Christian, a Christ follower, someone who knows Jesus as their Savior. That's, that's what I'm talking about. We first have to yield to him. Paul wrote in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I doubt there is a boy or man in this room that if pressed uh, would have to admit, yeah, I've sinned. I have, I have messed up. I have fallen short. I have lied, cheated, stolen, whatever. Uh, we are all sinners. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard of perfection, and we all have fallen short of that. And so what God did before man's history even began, he conceived a plan where he would send Jesus in the form of a man to this world to live a perfect life, and while still being God, he would be all man, and he would die on the cross. He would shed his blood, a payment that was acceptable before a holy and just God. God can't say, well, let that sin go, or let that sin go, or, you know, you lived a pretty good life on balance. God is holy. He is just. He cannot, it's against his nature, to allow you eternity with him if you don't have that sin problem taken care of. And so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to make a payment or sin that would be acceptable in the Father's sight. By believing that that payment is sufficient for your sin and repenting from your life of sin, the, life you were, the sin you were born into and the sin in your life now, by repenting and turning from it, that's what repent means. It means turn away from it. And placing your faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary, in his substitutionary atonement, that is, he in our place atoned before the Father, a sacrifice that would be acceptable. You can become a child of God. That's what the salvation story is. That's what the gospel is. We trust in him. We put our complete trust in him. As I've heard Pastor Hart preach, it's by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not anything that we bring, not by works lest any man should boast. We trust completely in the Lord. And then as a believer in Christ, we can rest in him and in his word and in his promises. So, men, would, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And I, I'm not going to call anybody out, and I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I want to give you a chance <clears throat> to just wrestle this morning with this issue. And if you are certain that you are a believer in Christ and that he has saved you from sin, would you be praying for those in our midst that maybe aren't? And to the second group, if this is new to you, man, I, I, I didn't understand this, or I, I'd like to talk to someone about this, or you're talking about me, sinner, without God, I need the Lord and I want to trust him as my savior this morning. If that's you, would you just raise your hand so I can see it? Because I want to pray for you. I'm just going to take a moment here. I'm not going to call you out. Father, I thank you for walking our life with us. I thank you for your faithfulness amidst our unfaithfulness. I thank you for sending Christ to die for my sins. Father, I thank you for the example of Caleb and Joshua. I thank you for Caleb's courage and his patience to wait four plus decades to see your hand in his life and to provide for him. Give us the courage of, of Caleb as we lead in hard times. I pray this in Jesus' name.